Mrs. Halligatti, you know, just switch to Ollie. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the uh, Joe and Joe Weather Show uh, on this Friday night. Uh, it's an unusual Friday night for us, as we usually take Friday nights off, but there's all, there's all sorts of stuff going on. And the Joe and Joe Weather Show is brought to you by Omni True Value Hardware in West Babylon, 1226 North Wellwood Avenue, 631-756-1125. The website is omnitruevalue.com. They are Long Island's largest rock salt provider, and they are getting ready for winter. And maybe you should too, because we do have some winter weather that might be on the way uh, in the next uh, four or five days. Omni True Value Hardware, 631-756-1125. And we are, uh, here we are on a Friday night, and we have a, a, a treat for everybody tonight because Joe's going to be uh, talking about uh, the Geminids uh, and uh, the meteor shower that may or may not be, um, it may or may not be visible depending on your sky condition. Uh, for Sunday night, which I don't know, when I looked at things today, uh, things looked a bit tenuous uh, with regards to some cloud cover. But we'll 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 see. Maybe maybe we'll luck out. But um, I don't know. You got your fingers crossed. Well, even if we're uh, skunked on Sunday, we still have Monday, and I think Monday night um, looks like we'll be in the process of clearing out nicely. Although Monday night is also be uh, a night for much colder weather a balmy weekend ahead of us. And of course, all the cold air is gonna come rushing in uh, once we get into the start of next week. But we'll talk about that, I guess, in a little bit. So, right. Uh, um, let me just really quick, Joe, just wanna thank uh, Anthony Orr and Jacob Bailey for hitting Super Chat here at the start of the show. Joe and I really do appreciate it greatly. We also uh, appreciate uh, you hit the like button. If you like the show tonight, Particularly if you like Joe Rayo's presentation, and there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't like it, uh, hit the like button, and uh, it it's it'll be a good thing for us. So um, you're gonna Joe's gonna go uh, Joe's gonna do his uh, his presentation on the Geminids, and then when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the uh, weekend and next week, which just a a brief uh, thing on next week, Joe, uh, starting to look like uh, we might see our first accumulating snow come the middle part of next week uh, for uh, for our area, at least from what I saw on the models today. Some models a little more bullish than others, and I have my ideas on that. I'm sure you do, too. Yes, I do. By the way, Joe, just so everybody knows, Joe and I don't talk to each other during the day. So I am. I have no idea what his forecast or his I his uh, his uh, where his mindset is when it comes to uh, what what may happen next week, and he has no idea of my. Well, he might have some idea, but he has no idea of my mindset either. So, um, we'll we'll, um, we'll 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 break that down. Uh, so it's all yours, and Joe's going to do his presentation, which is a presentation that he does uh, as been, and has been doing at uh, libraries all over. Westchester and Putnam counties in the People's Republic of the State of New York, and then when he's done, uh, we'll we'll do the weather part. In the meantime, I will be monitoring the chat board, and if you've got questions, put them up on the chat board, 
and I will relay them to Mr. Rayo. And once again, a reminder, hit the like button. All right. <laughs> Especially while Joe's on. All right. It's all yours. Go for it. All right. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my screen. I've gotten so adept to this over the last. Uh... Oh, you're getting tech. Ha- you're getting tech handy. You may actually turn on your phone now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's see how this all goes here. Um, I'm oh, there I am in the upper right hang right-hand on because I, I, I have to fix this on my end now. So just give me one second. And okay, did you uh, have anything up there on the screen? No, I um, boom. All right, hang on one okay. second. Okay, there you go. Now you should be all set. Let me bring it front and center here and get rid of, hang on, bring that up to the top. And uh, no, you know, it's, it's kind of, I want to make sure everybody sees your graphics. So I'm trying to make sure everything fits the screen correctly. That's, that's nice. You don't need to see, well, I guess, yeah, you don't need to see us. You don't need to see me, whatever. Okay, you're all, you're all set. And, to, uh, and, and quoting the lady from the cacti, ca, um, the candy factory in the I Love Lucy episode. Speed uh, it up a little. No, <laughs> let her roll. Let her roll. All right. Um, so this is a kind of a, a primer on what shooting stars or meteors are, and uh, also for the upcoming Gemini shower coming our way later on in the weekend. Uh, a friend of mine who is a professor of physical science at one of the uh, colleges here in the Hudson Valley uh, once gave a test in physical science. I guess it was a uh, final exam. One of the questions was, provide a definition for meteor in 25 words or less. One young lady who was taking the test and was perhaps on the cusp of pass-fail gave this response to that question. It's the flash of light caused by a falling meteorite as it rushes through the air in flight I hope to God this answer is right. Don't know whether or not she passed the test, but the professor gave her full credit for that answer. So the night we're looking for is Sunday night, December 13th. I would also put a circle around Monday night, the 14th as well. I'll explain why in a moment, but we're reaching the peak or maximum of the Geminid meteor shower. Now, if you look in any astronomy book, especially an old astronomy book, uh, and look up uh, comets and meteors, you'll read that the best meteor shower of the year is the Perseid shower, the tears of St. Lawrence. They come our way every year in the middle part of August. That used to be true that they were the best, but they're not the best anymore because the best shower, at least in recent years, is the Geminids. And I was very, very happy, thrilled, and very honored to get the cover story for Sky and Telescope magazine. They've been publishing uh, since 1941. As they note here, the essential guide to astronomy, uh, read by amateur and professional astronomers all over the world, not just the United States. And uh, it is, the Geminids are indeed the, the, the best meteor shower. No longer is it the Perseids. Now, during my youth, when I was growing up in the Throg's Neck part of the Bronx, my interest always lay in the possibility that, and you could call this Calvin and Hobbes logic, that a meteor might slam into my neighbor's yard fresh and piping hot and ready for the laboratory. Now here we see the anatomy of a meteor, the flaming flash we call a shooting star, 
is not really what you might think. The speeding missile is not what lights up the sky at all. It's the incandescence of the air ahead of it that couldn't get out of the way fast enough. The air ahead of so fast the thing gets packed into a white hot mass of compression, creating a big splash in the sky. As it enters our upper atmosphere, it speeds up to 40 miles per second. That's 100 times the speed of a rifle bullet. And atmospheric friction releases the kinetic energy of the object in a short live flash of light. Now, many meteorites, many meteoroids that managed to reach the ground as meteorites are still found cold, frosted, even freezing the ground around them, although the outside has been glazed by that heated air. As an analogy, if you take a block, a blowtorch to a block of ice, you'll realize that the inside of the ice block maintains its freezing or sub-freezing temperatures while the outside is melted away. Still as a youngster, uh, my mind was always filled with stories about Miss Ann Hodges, Mrs. Ann Hodges, I should say, about Alabama. She was napping on her sulfur one day in November of 1954. Look right above her head. See that hole up there? That's when a meteoroid zipped through the roof of her farmhouse, bounced off a large wooden console radio, and ended up hitting her in the thigh. It was a nine-pounder, left her with contusions of the hip, as well as a pineapple-shaped bruise. More recently, and this is not too far from where I live, in fact, it's one town over to the south, Peekskill, New York, in 1992, a 27-pound meteorite smashed through the trunk of a Chevy Malibu that was owned by a teenager, 17-year-old Michelle Knapp of Peekskill, New York. Moments before it crashed into her car, there was a brilliant fireball that was streaking across the sky that was seen from Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Washington. Uh, people there all describing this huge greenish meteor sailing across the sky. And uh, it was a Friday night in October. So its descent was captured on video by many high school football fans who were taping local football games, local high school games. Now, she looks rather sad here, rather uh, downtrodden, but don't feel too bad for Michelle Knapp because you see, she ended up she bought that car for 300 bucks, but she sold a meteorite, that 27-pound hunk of celestial debris, to a consortium of three collectors for $50,000 and sold the car to Iris Lang, who is the wife of the renowned uh, meteor collector and dealer Al Lang, for $25,000 more. So uh, Miss uh, Knapp made $75,000 by watching that uh, meteorite clunk her trunk and put that big hole it, it, was a, it was a windfall. You talk about mana from heaven. Still, people, when they hear about a meteor shower coming, they get all stressed out. Uh, some think that they might get clunked on the head by one of these things, but uh, don't fear. Uh, this is the man you see on the screen now was one of my mentors in astronomy, the former chief astronomer of the Hayden Planetarium in New York, Dr. Ken Franklin. A letter arrived on Ken's desk back in the early 80s from a gentleman, Gary Mitchell, and Mr. Mitchell wanted to know, is there any danger? I just heard the Perseid meteor showers coming. It was August. Is there any danger of you know, going outside and watching this? And Dr. Franklin wrote back, dear Mr. Mitchell, your fears about being struck by a meteoroid are ungrounded. The streaks of light are caused by tiny particles, no bigger than pebbles or sand grains. They burn up high in our atmosphere long before they ever reach the ground. The only dangers of watching a meteor shower are getting drenched in dew and falling asleep. Still, when you hear about a meteor shower in the news or radio, or you know that one is coming, you read about it, 
immediately your mind thinks of something I'm sure like this. But this is not a meteor shower. This is a meteor storm. And maybe two or three times a century do you get a chance to see something like this. This meteor storm, which occurred in 1872, took place when a comet split apart into two pieces. And about 10 years after the splitting, it made its last appearance before just completely disappearing. No one ever saw it again. But in 1872, on the night when we were crossing through the comet orbit, apparently we were crossing through the pulverized remains of that comet, which were still thickly clustered together and produced a shower or a storm of 7,000 shooting stars an hour. There's also another display that comes around every 33 years, the Leonid meteor shower. Maybe some of you might have remembered in 2001, the display the Leonids put on, something like 3,000 meteors per hour. The comet associated with that swarm goes around the sun at 33 intervals. So you add 33 to 2001, and maybe, just maybe, we'll be lucky enough to see something like this in the year 2034. This, by the way, is a painting rendered of the Leonids as they appeared over Niagara Falls in 1833. But you say to yourself, why do we call this a meteor shower if we only see meteors you know, every once in a while and not a full-fledged you know, pouring down of meteors? And the reason is this, hundreds of years ago, before there were newspapers, magazines, television, radio, what was your, what was your means of entertainment at night? It was stepping outside, looking up, and uh, looking up at the sky, looking up at the stars. People told stories about the constellations which they formed by connecting the dots, or in this case, connecting the stars and made them into patterns such as a big bear or a mighty hunter or Hercules or, or, or a dragon. That's, that's the way they entertained themselves. And while they were doing that, all those hundreds of years ago, they would notice a meteor or a shooting star would come by. And in fact, if they were out for let's say an hour, they might see two or three of those during the course of an hour's watch. But there were some nights during the year where they saw more than two or three an hour. Some nights they saw 15 or 20 or 40 or even 60 per hour, for goodness sake. Oh my goodness, 60 per hour, it's a veritable shower compared to what you normally would see on any other typical night. That's where we get the term meteor shower from. Ah, but to see the Geminids, and we've already alluded to that tonight, to see the Geminid meteors, you have a couple of hurdles to go over. Number one, uh, unlike the Perseids in August, which usually occur on a, on a clear, maybe albeit hazy night, uh, usually December is more tempestuous weather-wise. You get a lot more in the way of clouds and storms. So if it's cloudy on the peak night of the shower, you ain't gonna see the stars and you ain't gonna see any meteors either. But even if it's clear and crystal clear, in fact, you still have one other thing to be aware of. This gentleman I never got a chance to meet. He, he was one of the old timers at the Hayden Planetarium. His name is Henry Neely. He wrote a few books on astronomy. One is a very good book, a very good guide to the stars and constellations. You might still be able to find it on amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com. Uh, it's called A Primer for Stargazers. He wrote about the stars and the constellations, and also meteor showers. And this is what he said about the Geminid meteor shower. Take the advice of a man whose teeth have chattered on many a winter's night. Wrap up more warmly than you think is necessary. So said Henry Neely. Again, I never had a chance to meet him. He passed away in 1963, but his work, his books live on. And that's true. If you're going out to look for this meteor shower, the Geminids in most years 
you really have to bundle up. Uh, it's the, the nighttime sky in the winter is beautiful, much nicer in the summer than the summertime. In the summer, as I said, it's warm, it's humid, it's hazy. The wintertime, it's clear, it's cold. The night sky is crisp and clean, very transparent, and you tend to see a lot more in the way of stars. And also a lot more in the month of December versus August, a lot more sometimes in the way of snow, but you have to bundle up. Most memorable geminid meteor shower I've ever seen in all of these years was one in 1982, when I coerced or cajoled about six other people to join me at WVIP in Mount Kisco. Back then in the 1980s, I was doing strictly radio, not television. VIP was one of my radio stations. I used to do them in the morning, giving weather forecasts. And um, I knew the station very well. It was out in Mount Kisco. It was in a, in a very dark area, no bright lights. And there was also a big field out near the transmitter where there were no tall obstructions, no trees, no buildings to block the view of the sky. Well, came the night of the shower. The, the day before, we had an eight-inch snowstorm. And the night of the shower, the skies were crystal clear. The winds dropped off to a dead calm. Radiational cooling at its best. The temperatures plummeted. And we were out there, my friends and I, for about eight or 10 hours. I don't remember exactly how long. These caricatures were done by one of uh, a member of our group. When it was all over, said and done, we saw lots of meteors. In fact, there was one that lit up the whole field for a couple of seconds. But by the end of the night, the faces pretty much tell the story. The temperature at its lowest point, we would go into the radio station to warm up. The temperature at its lowest point, 0.5 degrees, one half degree above zero. <laughs> and that wasn't a wind chill. It really felt like we were inside a very, very um, heavy duty meat locker that night. I'm now gonna show you or demonstrate to you what you should not do if you plan to watch the meteor shower. Here I am. And I'm, I was sitting just a few moments ago in my living room watching the 11 o'clock news. And maybe I was watching uh, Maurice Dubois or uh, uh, whoever's doing the, the, the news on any of the other channels, um, Christine Johnson. And they say, oh, tonight is the night of the Gemini meteor shower. You could see dozens of meteors per hour. Well, immediately when I hear that, I run over out of my brightly lit Don't room. open the door, Joe. Don't open the door. <laughs> I I go to my I go to my uh, foyer where I get the uh, light winter jacket out of the closet, and I head outside to look for this beautiful celestial display. I step out on my front porch or my front stoop. I look up. I'm out there two minutes. I see nothing. I'm out there five minutes. I see nothing. I'm out there ten minutes, and by ten minutes, I am already freezing, and I've just about given up, and I still haven't seen anything. I come back inside. This pretty much is my expression. And you know what's going through my mind at this point? It's all media hype, fake news. I didn't see a blah, blah, blah thing. And you know why I didn't see a blah, blah, blah thing? Because I went about it all wrong. First of all, I went outside after being in a brightly lit room in a brightly lit foyer and thought I'd immediately see something the minute I stepped outside. Wrong, because my eyes were not adapted to the darkness. Your pupils, when you're in a brightly lit room, generally shrink down to something like this. You've got to go outside and get dark adapted. Wait for those pupils to get larger, bigger, and the more that they grow, the more and more you're going to begin to see faint objects like stars and meteors as well. So you need to dark adapt for at least 15 or at best 20 minutes. And here's your most important piece of equipment if you're going to watch a meteor shower, and that is 
a long lounge chair or a beach chair. Now, I don't know where yours is. Maybe it's in the attic. Maybe it's in the garage. Maybe it's in the basement. You've obviously stored it away because what are you going to need a, a beach chair for December or January or the winter months? But break it out if you plan to watch the meteor shower because let's say that the skies are clear uh, on the night of the meteor shower and you go out and you dark adapt and you bundle up properly and you're out there for a half an hour and you're out there for an hour or even an hour and a half or more. When you come back inside and you go to bed, when you wake up the next morning, you know what's going to happen? You're going to end up with a stiff neck or an achy shoulder or maybe a soreness in your back. Why? Because you've stood out there and you've looked up and you've craned your neck and you're looking for the stars and you're looking for shooting stars. That's not good. You've got to get comfortable. So the best way to watch a meteor shower is to get out your long lounge chair, lie down in it. Again, make sure you're all bundled up properly against the cold. And our friend who was so disappointed just a few moments ago now is properly attired and is getting a good view of the celestial show. He's bundled up in his heavy winter coat. He's got gloves on. He's wearing, you can't see them, but he's got a pair of woolen socks and maybe even some insulated boots. Uh, he's fully warm. He's comfortable because he's lying down and he's also got a companion, uh, a thermos jug filled with hot tea, hot cocoa. Maybe if you like coffee, fill that up there too. Don't use or rely on uh, any liquor. Don't, uh, you know, I know in uh, the Miracle on 34th Street that the first Santa Claus uh, was telling uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, people who put the parade together, I need this stuff. I need something to keep me warm. Well, no, it doesn't keep you warm and actually it dulls the senses. So if you're going to drink anything out there that night of the meteor shower, it's best to have uh, a thermos of uh, something hot. Keep you warm inside and keep you alert, like cocoa, tea, coffee. And maybe you might want to have a you know bag of cookies or a sandwich uh, to help out. Uh, this is the way to watch a meteor shower. You also want to get some friends involved too. Of course, in this year of 2020, social distance, stay six feet apart, unless you're watching with your immediate family. And it's always nice. You know, the, the Geminids on the peak night, you can see maybe two or three in a single minute. And then all of a sudden, two or three minutes pass, you don't see a darn thing until the next little bundle of meteors come by, the clumping effect, as it's called. And during those periods when it's low and there's nothing going on, nice to have a friend to chat things over, maybe talk about the day or the year or whatever you want to talk about, or maybe have a little music in the background. So my advice is meteor shower with a friend. Now, we call these Geminids because they come from Gemini. Any meteor shower that occurs coming from a specific constellation, we name it after the constellation and add an ID, the suffix id, after the constellation. So in the summertime, the Perseids, here's Cassiopeia, here's Perseus the hero, and you see how these meteors are darting out from the upper portion of Perseus. So we call this the Perseid meteor shower. But the fact that they're darting from this area is an optical illusion for the same reason that the road that you see, the center line, the lights, the trees are all not converging in the distance. You know that they're all on parallel lines, parallel paths and never come close to each other. But from this perspective, there's a vanishing point, if you will. They all seem to be converging here. Same reason when meteors, which are all moving on parallel paths, when we move through that meteor swarm, what happens? They appear to diverge from one spot in the sky for the same reason that we see this uh, appearance of convergence here. They diverge. There's a vanishing point up here. That vanishing point is what we call the radiant. 
Here's an example of two Geminid meteors. Gemini, even if you don't know the constellations, if you go out late on a winter's night, look toward the south, there is Orion the Hunter right there. Here's something you don't see in any part of the sky. As soon as you see it, you know you're looking at Orion. Uh, three stars, equally bright, equally spaced apart, the belt of Orion. Above Orion and to the left of Orion are a group of stars. That's Gemini, the twins. These two bright stars are the heads of the twin brothers. There's Castor, there's Pollux, and these are Gemini meteors. How do we know that? Trace the streaks backward. This one seems to be coming from the vicinity of Pollux, uh, from, from Castor. This one seems to be coming from the direction of Pollux, the twin brothers. And so we call these meteors Geminid meteors. During the evening, you say to yourself, well, when can I start watching? You could start as early as six or seven o'clock. But if you watch at six or seven o'clock, a couple of things. Number one, the meteors tend to be slow. Number two, they tend to be faint. And number three, if you happen to get an unusually bright meteor at that hour of the night, it's going to track a long ways across the sky. These are called earth skimmers, and they, we, they hit the atmosphere almost in the same way that when you toss a stone out across a lake or a pond, they seem to skip. These tend to skim across the top of our atmosphere when the meteor uh, radiant is very low to the sky, like at six or seven or eight or, or nine o'clock in the evening. But again, they tend to move more slowly than meteors later on in the night, and they also tend to be a bit dimmer. It's unusual to see a very bright Earth skimmer. Uh, I was doing the weather for a radio station. I think it was in Boston, WHDH, many, many years ago, and uh, they broke in with a news bulletin. They said they thought they, uh, they, they in the evening they were looking for a plane that seemed to be on fire that was descending uh, down toward the uh, western part of the sky. I got on the phone to the newsroom. It was the night I knew of the peak of the Geminid shower, and I said, I have a feeling that it's not a plane that they saw, that these people probably saw a fireball meteor, a long earth grazer or earth skimmer from the Geminid shower. No one ever found the plane, and nobody ever uh, found any uh, uh, record that a plane uh, uh, did uh, crash land, let's say, in the uh, Atlantic water. So indeed, it probably was a, a, an earth skimmer, it probably was a Gemini meteor because they can appear very bright. When you get past nine o'clock, the radiant is now more than a third of the way up the sky. And now a couple of things begin to happen. Number one, the meteors are much shorter. They're not very long uh, because they're hitting the earth more directly. Number two, they're beginning to speed up a little bit in, in, uh, in uh, uh, their speed across the sky. And they're also becoming brighter. In fact, the later into the night you go, the faster and brighter these meteors will appear. And we'll explain that why in just a moment. By 2 a.m., if you happen to be in your long lounge chair at 2 o'clock in the morning and you're still looking around, you'll know that uh, Gemini, where the meteors are coming from, will be directly overhead. But you don't look directly overhead for meteors at that moment in time at 2 a.m. If you're looking straight overhead and concentrating here, you won't see very many meteors because you're looking at the vanishing point. You're looking at a void in the sky where all the meteors are coming from. What you want to do is you want to look up at the sky and keep your eyes moving around. Uh, don't stare at any one place. Just keep looking around. Keep looking all over. And pretty soon you'll see a streak in the sky. Trace the streak backward. Another one will come by. Trace the streak backward also until you begin to notice the pattern of stars from which these objects are um, coming from. A third streak will come by and hopefully intersect the same place as the first two did. That point of intersection, again, is called the radiant. 
The uh, activity graph for the Geminids indicates that they get a slow start. They start around the 5th of December, very, very low rates, maybe four or five an hour, and they continue to be very low in intensity until you get about August 12th. That'll be tomorrow night. Then you look, 25 meteors per hour. That's pretty good. And then on August, the night of the 13th into the morning of the 14th, early in the evening, 50 per hour. That would be for Sunday night. And then just before daybreak on on a Monday morning, if you're out that long, now the rate is like 100 per hour. In 2018, really good rates, all the way up to 150 per hour. And you want to know what? You ain't going to see anything like that. I'm not talking about the weather. That's not the problem so much as where we all live, because we all live. <clears throat> not in, in a yellow, not in a yellow submarine. No, on. we don't live in a yellow submarine. We live in generally in the I-95 corridor. This is the satellite view. And if you've watched the Joe and Joe show and you've ever watched how we uh, show off on a clear night, the views of the northeastern United States, you see all these lights from Washington and Baltimore to Wilmington, to Philadelphia, to Trenton, to New York, Long Island, the Hudson Valley, up to Hartford, Providence and Boston. It is one continuous band of light pollution. By, by the way, just, Joe, just on, on this note of light pollution, sorry to inter interrupt, uh, but on this note of not light pollution, one of the things that I've noticed on my in my drives down south to, uh, to Georgia, it, two things. There are great stretches out there where uh, there is no light pollution, but uh, and. Uh, Oh, since I can remember from from when I was a kid, it's amazing to me uh, driving in some of these areas that were just virtually undeveloped and no natural light. Uh, how 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 much um, how many areas have uh, how that area of uh, of uh, just natural light and not the city lights has shrunk over the last twenty years? It's getting harder and harder to find. Yes, absolutely, Joe. You're absolutely right. And in fact, when I was a very young boy, I, the magazine article that I wrote for Sky and Telescope, I dedicated that article to my aunt and uncle, uh, my aunt Irma and my uncle Wani, because when I was a kid and just getting started in, in astronomy, this is what goes back now about 50 years ago, they lived in Mayo Pack, New York. Now, I live only a few miles away from Mayo Pack in Putnam Valley. Back then, 50 years ago, that sky was so dark and so black, it was almost like being out in the desert southwest. On summer evenings, some nights, the Milky Way was so bright that you can cast shadows from its light. Today, 50 years later, when I go outside and look up at the sky and the stars, and I always aspire, I said way back when, uh, I said, when I grow up, I'm gonna move and get a house close to where my Uncle Ronnie is, so I can get a chance to see the stars in all their glory. Well, now, here it is 50 years later, almost like a cancer, almost metathesizing, if you will, across the entire Northeast corridor are these dazzling, brilliant lights. So when I go out at night now and I look toward the south, about half of my southern sky is lit up. You, you don't see a, a direct uh, a view of the lights, but you get a light haze, if you will, where a lot of the dimmer stars are invisible because the lights are so bright toward New York City that they get lost in that haze. Other parts of the sky are darker, but it just is not the way it was way back when, back in uh, the day when I was uh, 
looking at the sky from no, there. He, he, where I live, he, when I first moved out here 30 years ago in central Long Island, there were, except for the, the expressway, there were very few streetlights at all. I had hardly any uh, uh, light pollution here. And now, of course, you can see from your map, it's a, all the way out to Riverhead and even parts of the East End now have um, have light pollution issues. Let me just say, Joe, really quick, uh, thank you, the 93 likes that we've got. Thank you very much for, for, for liking our live stream. And if you haven't liked the live stream, go ahead and like it and get us over 100. Okay, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Doing, I must be doing a good job, huh? You're doing a great job. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> but you're right, Joe. You're right about where you are. In fact, in Southhold, on the North Fork of Long Island, there is an observatory called the Custer Institute. And in fact, there's a telescope in the observatory there that was uh, made by Alvin Clark, one of the great telescope um, uh, manufacturers, one of the great uh, amateur astronomers of the, of the 19th century. Now, back 30 or 40 years ago, it was great to go out to Custer. I mean, uh, the only thing out there were potato fields and big, broad areas of nothing. Now, as you head on out toward uh, South Hole and Riverhead, all of a sudden, hotels have popped up. Lights have popped up every which way. The skies are still relatively dark. I say relatively compared to the rest of Long Island, but it's nothing like it was 30 or 40 years ago. This scene that you see right now on your screen, before and after, uh, this is the, the before picture was taken by a gentleman who is an amateur astronomer who lives just outside of Toronto, Ontario. And he took a picture of the sky showing you what it typically is, it looks like at night. You see a few stars, but notice the orange haze from Toronto and notice also he's got a bright street light in front of his house. Then came August 4th, 2003. Remember that night? That was the night when all of the Northeast and parts of Canada were blacked out by some electrical problem. Uh, some places were blacked out for more than a day. And uh, this gentleman in Toronto or out in the suburb of Toronto stepped outside his house that night and look at the difference between a normal night and what was happening afterwards. After all the lights went out, he got a chance to see for the first time from his home, the Milky Way in all its glory, many faint stars, the street light in front of his house is out. So uh, you can tell the difference between a place that has lots of light pollution and a place that has hardly any light pollution. So what I'm telling you is this, the Gemini meteors are advertised as creating or pr producing on their peak night, 120 meteors per hour. You'll see that 120 per hour if you have a sky like this. And if you don't have any tall buildings or tall trees to obstruct visibility, that's where you'll see 120 an hour. If you live in an area with light pollution or even semi-light pollution, um, you're gonna see a lot less, maybe uh, 30 or 40 or 50, maybe. Uh, and if you live near New York City or, or a big city, you're going to see a lot less than that. So I just want to use that as a disclaimer. Meteor showers, when you see them uh, advertised and the hourly rate is advertised, uh, it all depends upon how dark your sky is. And I said that they, the meteors are generally dimmer and fainter and slower uh, in the evening as opposed to the morning. And here is why. As the Earth goes around the sun, it's going around the sun here from right to left. As it goes around the sun uh, at 18 and a half miles per second, 66,000 miles an hour, pretend that you're on a train. This is the Earth. Here's where we live. It's moving in a counterclockwise fashion or rotating in a counterclockwise fashion. So in the evening, we're on the caboose. 
we're on the uh, on the tail end of the train. This is where we are at six, seven, eight o'clock at night. So unless there are any meteors out there, any meteoroids that are approaching the Earth and either moving as fast or faster than us at 18.5 miles per second, you're not going to see very many meteors. And those meteors that do manage to hit the Earth or overtake the Earth generally move slowly. And slow meteors generally are not very bright. They usually are uh, relatively dim or relatively faint. But now watch what happens as the Earth turns, as we go again from here, the PM, to after midnight and now into the morning hours. Well, in the morning hours, all of a sudden, we're on that side of the Earth, the forward side of the Earth. We're in the engine room now. And now as we move forward at 18 and a half miles per second, even a meteor that's moved slowly is gonna look fast because we're running literally right into it. And if there are any meteors out there that are moving in a direction opposite to that of the Earth, they're really gonna move fast. They're really going to be bright and they really will be quite spectacular because again, they're fast, they're bright. So after midnight, even though you can watch for Gemini meteors in the early evening hours, you don't see that many because again, uh, they, they move slowly and they kind of dim or faint. But if you stay out until let's say after midnight or 10 o'clock or anytime in the after midnight hours, that's when you will see the really bright meteors. Bye now. Um, this was taken at like four o'clock in the morning. Again, here's our friend Orion. Here's the belt of Orion. Gemini is up here somewhere. This meteor dropped right straight down from the radiant. Now, to give you an idea of how bright this meteor was, this Geminid was, see this over here? That's Sirius, the dog star. Sirius is the brightest star in the sky. And look how Sirius looks compared to this meteor. This was probably many times brighter than even Venus and probably lit the sky up and lit the uh, landscape up for a second or two. This is a super fireball. And you see a few of these with the Geminid meteor shower. Sometimes because they're so very cold, they've, they've been out in space for hundreds or thousands or millions of years, these particles, and then they suddenly light up in the space of a heartbeat to over a thousand degrees and they fragment, they break up, they explode. And that's when you end up with what we call a bolide or an exploding meteor. I saw one of these, actually I didn't see one of them. I was on a ship in the Mediterranean in 1993 with a bunch of other people we were watching in the summertime for the uh, Perseid meteor shower. And all of us were on the deck of the ship and we're watching and we're watching all of a sudden a big flash appeared, lit up the whole deck for a second or two. And everybody said, what was that? What was that? And we all turned around. I thought initially, maybe it was the ship's photographer taking a picture of all these people in the middle of the night on the deck, you know, looking up at the sky. It wasn't. When we turned around, we saw the luminous lingering contrail of a brilliant meteor, which ended with a little blob at the end. That blob was obviously where the meteor exploded uh, or popped. And I must tell you that it looked initially to the eye like a luminescent contrail. You know those high-flying planes, which some people say are chemtrails? <clears throat> but uh, the luminous contrail- Let's not go there. Yeah, no, I'm not going there. <laughs> the high-flying high plane that leaves those contrails, you can't see them at night, obviously, because it's dark, but a meteor leaves a contrail of, of ionization of gas of incandescence behind it. And that's what we saw in the little blob where the, the meteor exploded. Now, the other thing that you may want to carry with you if you're looking at a meteor shower is a pair of binoculars. No, you're not going to see meteors like that and moving across the sky and catch a few of them with your binoculars. 
But if you see one of these big ones flaring on by and even popping and leaving a trail that hangs in the sky for five or 10 seconds, grab the binoculars and take a look at it. Because long after the trail has disappeared, you're still likely to see it in binoculars. And moreover, these things are like 40 to 80 miles above our head. You know how, how vigorous those winds are, those high altitude winds at 40 to 80 miles up? They'll take that straight and true trail left by the meteor and bend it into a corkscrew or maybe make it into a semicircle or waves in the upper atmosphere. And it's fascinating to watch. So again, if you have binoculars, carry them with you. And if you're looking and if one of these big ones happens to flare on by, you'll get a good view of them for a short while, even after they disappear to the eye with your, uh, with, uh, without your binoculars. Geminids are colorful. 90% are yellow-white. That's no big deal. But the last 10% can appear red, orange. When we froze our you-know-whats off at WVIP in 1982 in that big field, we saw one gigantic green meteor. And you don't often see green in the nighttime sky. That's a color that's not often seen. But we saw one that night. And uh, that was a spectacular thing to see. That, that, that alone, that one green meteor, made the whole night for us, even though we froze for eight hours or even a bluish meteor as well. And because they move more slowly and slower meteors tend to have color, uh, that's why before midnight, they tend to be more colorful than what you would see, let's say, in the after midnight hours. They're caused, meteor showers are caused by comets. Comets are big, dirty litter bugs in the solar system. They're big um, of, uh, cosmic snowballs, if you will, which are embedded with tiny particles of nickel and stone and iron. And as they get close to the sun, through sublimation, the uh, snow and ice go directly from ice to a, to a gas or a vapor. And as they do so, they liberate those tiny particles out into space. And those particles end up along the path of the comet, like a river of rubble in space. And when the Earth interacts with that river of rubble and moves through it and collides with those little tiny particles at high speed, we tend to see shooting stars. The big enigma about the Geminids was we never could find the comet. We could, the, all the other meteor showers we were able to tie together with a comet. The Perseids in August came from comet Swift-Tuttle. The Leonids in November come from comet Temple-Tuttle. The Orionids and the Aquarians of October and May come from Halley's Comet. We go through the debris of Halley's Comet on previous visits in May and October, and we see a meteor shower. But the Geminids, so bright, so reliable, so spectacular, where did, the, where did the comet come from? We were never able to identify where the comet was until 1983, when this satellite, the IRAS satellite, IRAS, infrared astronomical satellite, looking for objects in the infrared, but also stumbling occasionally across a new comet or a new asteroid, found an asteroid in October of 1983. This asteroid, which was named Phaeton. Phaeton in the Greek mythology is the son of Helios, the god of the sun. Well, here we go. This asteroid takes two years to go around the sun in a very elliptical, almost comet-shaped like orbit. And when it gets close to the sun, it's 14 million miles from the sun. That's closer than even Mercury. Mercury is 36 million miles, we're at 93 million. This asteroid comes within 14 million miles of the sun. And after the orbit was uh, was calculated, Mr. Comet, Dr. Whipple, Dr. Fred Whipple, who spent his entire life 
uh, devoted to the study of asteroids and comets, he said, wait a minute, hold on. Back in the 1960s, me and a bunch of other guys, other scientists, uh, photographed the Gemini shower one night. We calculated their orbit. And the orbital circumstances of those meteors seem to match Phaeton. I think that the Gemini meteor shower comes from the asteroid Phaeton. And that is absolutely the case. But how? How can, a how can a meteor shower come from an asteroid? Now, we know how they come from comets. Comets are big balls of ice that gets close to the sun. The particles embedded in the ice are released into space once the ice melts and vaporizes. But there's no ice on an asteroid. There's no snow on an asteroid. How does it do it? 14 million miles from the sun, that asteroid gets very hot. So hot, in fact, it glows a reddish or orange color. So hot. 1,500 degrees, aluminum can melt at 1,500 degrees, for God's sake. And also, cracks, fissures open up on the, on the asteroid. And as it opens up, it lets all of that material, that rocky material, go out into space. So just like a comet, the asteroid, this asteroid, is letting go and with, with uh, a trail of, of cosmic debris. That also, by the way, solves another mystery because the, 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 the Geminids uh, were uh, known to be uh, uh, more dense than the other meteor showers. The other meteor showers from comets, big fluffy comets, uh, they have the consistency, the particles have consistency of cigar ash. But this, this meteor shower, we always knew were uh, a lot more dense, thicker, tougher, if you will, four times more dense than uh, most of the other meteor showers. This literally, literally, is a rock shower. And indeed, the Geminids are so spectacular that they do indeed rock. When I did that article for Sky and Telescope, and this is one of the, the, the wonderful thing about our technology today, you know, ask me to do this, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, I never would have been able to do this. But in our computerized era, it was fairly easy with a, uh, with a, uh, um, a bit of software, uh, an orbital simulator, if you will, I, I, I got to wondering, why is it that the Gemini, all the other meteor showers have been known for hundreds and even thousands of years. One meteor shower was uh, seen by the Chinese in their chronicles, 687 BC. But the Geminids have only been seen, only been recorded as far back as, eight, as 1862. You go back before 1862, there's no mention of the Gemini meteor shower. Nobody noticed them. They, they, they weren't anything in the sky. But beginning in 1862, people began to notice meteors coming from Gemini. So I got to thinking, how about if we look at the asteroid Phaeton and the orbit of the Earth? And I did using that orbital simulator, I found something very interesting out. That before 1862, the orbit of the asteroid and the orbit of the, of the Earth were so far apart that you couldn't possibly see any trail or any debris shed by that asteroid. But after 1862, the orbit of the asteroid and the orbit of the Earth have been getting closer and closer and closer together. And with each passing year, the Geminids are becoming more and more and more prolific. And they're very, very prolific and very obvious now. They could get even more obvious in the coming years. In fact, in 2080, the orbit of the asteroid and the orbit of the Earth will practically coincide at one point in our orbit in December. That's where I think the peak of the shower will be. That's where we'll see the greatest number per hour of 
meteors. And then after that, after we get by uh, 2140, 2200, as we begin to move away, as we see the orbits of the Earth and the asteroid begin to separate again, we'll see less and less and less of the meteors. And by my calculation, by 2300, we should be seeing the end of the Geminid meteor shower. And after that, no more Geminid shower, no more great meteor display in the month of December. And look how the rates have climbed through the years. 1862, just a scant few, 20 per hour by 1900. 1950, 50 per hour. By 1980, the Geminids pretty well was matching the Perseid shower of August. And then they left the Perseids in their dust, literally and figuratively speaking. 100 per hour by 2000. Now, the quoted rate, again, for those of you without light pollution or any uh, obstructions to visibility, 120 per hour. 2080, that rate may climb when the uh, orbits of the, uh, of the Earth and the asteroid nearly coincide, 200 per hour. And then after that, the rates will begin to de decline. And by 2300, the end is nigh. That'll be the end of the Geminid meteor shower. But no matter what the future holds, we should consider ourselves fortunate to be living at a time when we can enjoy such a wonderful celestial pyrotechnics display each December. Just think of the Geminids as nature's free holiday gift, one worth braving cold temperatures uh, to receive. And in fact, let me also tell you that while the weather may be questionable for Sunday night, go out on Monday night because the Geminids, the MO of the Geminids is such that um, even though the peak will be past us on Monday night, for whatever reason, we see more in the way of big, bright fireball and bolide meteors after the night after the peak. The rates will be lower, but you tend to see a lot more of the very big, the very bright uh, meteors uh, that particular night, the night after the peak. Um, I just threw up here the uh, uh, website, um, the uh, uh, if you go to this URL, this is uh, the URL of Sky and Telescope. If you go to this uh, URL, you won't find my uh, article. For whatever reason, they, uh, they say, well, we can't put your article up online. If we do that, no one's going to buy the magazine, right? All right, uh, I accept that. But they still have a guide to the Geminids online. And if you go to skyandtelescope.org slash astronomy hyphen news slash banner hyphen year hyphen geminid hyphen meteor hyphen shower. If you go to that uh, site, you will be able to see the online version written by another very fine uh, writer uh, and his name is Bob King. And he'll help you through uh, some of the facts about the uh, meteor shower. And before we go, to jump ahead, next year, 2021, we are gonna have as our celestial highlight, an eclipse of the sun. I know that everybody's waiting for the one in 2024 that's gonna be a total eclipse over upstate New York. In fact, uh, if you go on April 8, 2024 to Buffalo or Syracuse or Rochester or Plattsburgh, they're in the path of totality. They'll be able to see the sun covered for almost four minutes by a total eclipse. While you're waiting for that though, how about this? June 10th, 2021 of next year, if you go into this zone, which starts at the north shore of Lake Superior and continues across Hudson Bay and on up into the polar regions of Canada, in this zone, you will see an annular eclipse, not an annual eclipse, but an annular or ring eclipse. The moon is gonna to be too far away to cover the sun completely. 
And so when it's centrally over the sun, you'll see the sun transformed into a ring. Uh, that's where we get the term annular from, annular from Latin annulus, meaning ring shape. Now, look, we're not in the zone here in the tri-state area. We're down here, but we're still awfully close to that zone. So we're going to see an awful lot of the sun covered. In fact, we're going to see 80% covered. And the peak of that eclipse will come on June 10th, 2021 at 525 in the morning. 525 in the morning? Well, it's 10 days from the summer solstice. And as we are well aware, in June, the sun does rise fairly early. In fact, that's when sunrise is, 525 in the morning. As it turns out, the peak of this eclipse is going to coincide with sunrise. So let us hope that the skies are clear. I frankly hope it's going to be hazy. You ever have one of those mornings when it's so hazy, the sun comes up looking like a big red or orange cherry, or the sun will go down looking that way too? I hope we have a morning like that on June 10th, because if we have a morning like that, you're going to see the most incredible sunrise that you will probably ever see in your life. Right here from the New York area, this is pretty much what you're going to see. The sun on that morning is going to come up looking like, well, looking like a honeydew slice of melon, a beautiful crescent. And again, that'll happen as the sun comes up that morning. That's going to be a pretty wild sight. And I predict that a lot of people will probably be heading for on Long Island for many of the shorelines. So watch the sunrise that, that morning or maybe in the New York City area, they'll get on top of some tall buildings to, to watch the sun up. That's really gonna be spectacular to see if, <laughs> if we get clear weather. Joe and I will work on it for you. Finally, I wanna finish this, uh, this dissertation off with a quote from uh, Garrett Service, a guy who was an amateur astronomer in Midtown Manhattan and, and Brooklyn. He lived, he lived in Brooklyn, but he used to like to observe in and around New York City. He lived in the late 19th, early 20th century. I'm sure that the skies were a lot darker and a lot better now, uh, better then than they are now. And in one of his books, uh, I, I uh, love this, this quote, and that's why I use it at the end of most of my astronomy talks. He wrote, surely there is not another field of human contemplation so wonderfully rich as astronomy. It is so easy to reach, so responsive to every mood, so stimulating, uplifting, abstracting, and infinitely consoling. Now, everybody, wrote Mr. Service, everybody may not be a chemist. Everybody may not be a geologist. And certainly everybody may not become a mathematician. Oy vey. But everybody may be and ought to be in a modest personal way an astronomer or stargazing, and especially in this crazy year of 2020, when we need a little something to help calm the nerves and help us to just relax a little bit. Stargazing is a great medicine for the soul. And I did this for Joe, because I know he's a big Bugs Bunny fan. And there right. you, are. you are switching back. Let's get you on the screen. I'm there, but your box isn't. Now you got you. Right. Okay, great. Um, Carl, uh, Carl, um, Craig Carlberg uh, was asking about the next uh, uh, time the Geminids, 2034. That was well, that's the Leonids. 
the Leonids. Okay, he wrote Jevons, but it was Leonids. Okay, yeah. very good. The Leonids in 2034, that would be the next chance. I think uh, some some people are saying that we may see as many as 1,000 or 1,200 an hour. But what I did not mention is, and I've, I've Joe, I've, I'm, I've written the, you know, now that I'm not working anymore and I'm not in front of a TV camera eight hours a day, it, yeah, and I'm sure the same holds for you too. You've been able to do a lot of stuff that you were not other you know, able to do when you when we were, you know, in the working class. Right. And uh, I have been working on a uh, on a technical paper, uh, which actually right now is being uh, reviewed. It's under scientific review by uh, Work Group News, uh, the international meteor organization in Brussels, Belgium. They're looking at this paper that I wrote about. Uh, something similar to what happened in the 19th century. A comet broke up in 1995, and now the big question is, will the debris from that comet uh, interact with the Earth and cause a meteor outburst or a meteor storm? If it happens, if we have a chance, it's however slight, but we have a chance in May, May 31st, 2022, at one o'clock in the morning, Eastern Daylight Time, we might be treated to a, a big outburst of meteors or a storm of meteors not uh, quite certain about that because this will be the very first time we ever interacted with that debris. But um, I wrote the paper on it and uh, looked at it and I said, yeah, there's, there's a shot at this happening. And so uh, maybe in 2022, you'll, you'll be hearing about this uh, a bit more, but if it doesn't happen in 2022, maybe 2034 will be our next chance to see a real full-fledged boom outburst of meteors. Until then, uh, we have the Geminids to fall back on this Sunday and Monday night. All right. So give me a minute here so I can fix. I got to. Um, I got to take. I got. I, I. I got to fix my switcher here. I'll tell you uh, what, so we can get just, the maps up. Can I just sign off for a second? You go I ahead and sign off. And um, I'll sign back on. And, and you sign, sign back, back on. on. I'll just do a little. Uh, just just a couple of quick mentions here. We are going to go now into the weather portion of of this. Um, of this program. So uh, don't leave us now. Uh, I just want to uh, thank uh, those of you who uh, hit the like button, got 118 likes so far, and uh, we'd love to have a few more. So if you like our show, uh, please, by all means, hit the like button. Uh, we certainly do appreciate it. We're going to get into the weather part of this uh, as we start to talk uh, uh, talk about uh, the uh, upcoming uh snow events that are happening uh, well certainly one i want to talk about also on monday because that um, sort of threw me a curveball today with what one of the uh, models did uh, with respect to uh, the uh, uh, for the first wave that goes out off the southeast coast let me just say because i've been reading some of the comments on the chat with respect to the, the uh, weather coming up uh i'm i'm always astounded by the fact that uh, the amount of information that gets out into the general public. Uh, the day I barely got out of bed today where I started seeing people quoting all sorts of numbers off of snowfall maps, and I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. Snowfall forecast maps that you see that are generated by models are horrible, horrible forecast tools, particularly in the long range. You really don't need to use a snowfall forecast map uh, other than to maybe if you want to just sort of define where uh, s some of the heavier snow might be, that's fine. But in terms of the actual print numbers, 
at the very least, if you want to use a general rule, I would take any number on those maps, uh, whichever model you're, you're looking at. So I would do it with all of them. I would cut all the numbers in half. At the, right off the bat, cut all the numbers in half because uh, they are they rarely ever verify, especially when you see some of these big numbers. Uh, also, bear in mind that the weather models, uh, the further Bill Goodman pointed this out uh, when we had him on yesterday. The uh, models, the further out you go in time, the more robust they have they are when it comes to precip most of the time when they're dealing with a storm that's going to be of consequence maybe not something you know something that's in its formative stages uh that's one thing but if you look at you're looking uh say uh, six days seven days eight days from now and the model shows a storm over your particular area chances are uh that the uh, amount of precip that's being produced by by the model is overdone way overdone. Uh, I would actually uh, prefer it the other way where uh, you see it uh, where uh, it doesn't show much and then gradually it starts increasing with every run. You get a bit more, a bit more, and a bit more. I think that lends a lot more confidence. So just the, the snowfall forecast maps are just, I, it's horrible that they're out there. I have to tell you, I remember when they first started showing up I thought, oh, look at this. This is great. And then I quickly realized that they are they, they cause more trouble because people start quoting wholesale numbers. And I, I get folks giving me messages telling me that, you know, they're hearing uh, 18 to 24 inches. No responsible forecaster would even even make a mention of of, uh, uh, of any kind of number of that magnitude. Um, I certainly would not. And I know Joe Rayo would not. So, uh, again, just a word to the wise. When you see... Uh, numbers being thrown out and also be very careful some some stations um, some places they do very little forecasting and it's just basically whatever the model uh, whatever the model of choice they're using um, that is the um, uh, that that that's what they're going to talk talk about this model did this that model did that and and uh, that that really isn't forecasting you can go look at the models yourself uh you you don't need uh, you you don't need a talking head on television uh to tell you uh to tell you about that so you're back hello okay did you do what you had to do well the problem do? was that i couldn't i could if i had to <laughs> sign off because if i don't sign off my I, I i wasn't able to get rid of my uh background my uh powerpoint background oh okay i kept hitting, I kept hitting escape and i said i I have to get all the screens shut off to exit out of the PowerPoint to, and then I have to come back in. So, All right. So uh, now it's time. We're going to do a little bit of weather here and uh, actually going to do more than a little bit of weather because we got a lot to talk about. Can what you is, see this? Yes, I did. That's your little hand-drawn thing that you like to do. Yes. There are two lines there. I, I did the 12Z analysis of the uh, – ensemble analysis for the GFS mm -hmm. and also for the uh, European. That's kind of like the mean of the two. Right. The one in the, the one in the, uh, in the, the top one is yesterday's 12 Z run. And the one below it is today's 12 Z run. Do you, do you get what I'm trying to point out here? Well, yeah. I, and in fact, uh, one of the things that I, that struck me this morning when I saw how the Canadian model, for example, as robust as it was, was further south than everybody else, and and I and I, I I'm suggesting that uh, the strength of this block 
to the north is, is not to be denied. That high does not go out. Not only does the high not get out of the way, but it actually rebuilds. Uh, and there is a chance that you could wind up seeing this getting getting suppressed uh, uh, further south. I don't think this is going to be one where it goes in, in the other direction. Uh, the block to me is just too overwhelming. It's amazing. I can't remember the last time I actually said that. It's been years since we've been talking since we've talked about a blocking pattern in the winter time, but we sure have one now. And yeah, uh, I was just saying before you came back on how I, I'm, it, it's just so annoying having people uh, throw numbers at me because other people are pulling numbers off snow forecast maps uh, and, you know, we're saying that we're going to get 18 to 24 or whatever the register is just ridiculous. Now, I'm going to tell you and I'll be, I'm going to be open about this. I know it's only Friday. So if you want to get an idea, at least in my mind, when I'm looking at everything, I have to tell you, my initial impressions were that there will, it'll be a band of, and I tend to be a little bit conservative early on. I like to, you know, unless it's obvious, I want to stay conservative. It's the first storm of the season, but I'm thinking that there'll be a band of two to four, three to six inches that's kind of how I'm thinking about this right now because I, 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 I'm having some trouble with the incredibly robust and the incredibly amped up European and Canadian models. Um, I'm, I find it remarkable that the GFS has been this sort of um, example of just consistency. The model hasn't really changed very much over the last two and a half days. It seems to have kind of zeroed in on this. And actually, all the models have a certain similarity to them, uh, running through them. But I, I'm not, I, I don't know, the, the, the amped up versions that, that are out there with respect to the uh, European and the Canadian, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, 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 I'm a little skeptical of those. Just now realize that we're six days out. You were absolutely right. The high is looking, has, has signs of showing uh uh, building or amplifying. And, you know, a lot of people just arbitrarily just forget about the high. They concentrate on the low or the storm system. And they say, look at this, this is going to be a event. But you know what? As much as the storm is uh, itself, you know, looking rather impressive, the more that high builds, Joe. And, and one other thing, with, with a strong high like that, you just know that somebody's going to have a significant sharp cutoff of whatever snow. Right, on the northern flank. We, right. we, we, go ahead. And, 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 and there's something that I want to discuss with regards to that, but go ahead. And, and it doesn't, you know, if we're only six days out. To me, Joe, and I've said this time and again, when I start getting interested, when I start getting serious about these things, we get within 84 hours because that's because whatever is going to take place or take shape uh, begins to sample a much larger data set and we get a much better handle on both the strength and particularly the track of any uh, particular weather system. So we're going to have to wait uh, maybe another couple of more days before we really begin to hone in on what is may happen here uh, at midweek next week. And all I'm saying is if that high just keeps building and you saw just in the last 12 hours, the progression, right. uh, maybe about another, maybe about a hundred miles further south. And actually, interestingly, it starts off both ensembles from yesterday and today start off pretty much near um, near the area around North Carolina, because uh, the coast of North Carolina, because 
it, it's the the energy is being transferred mm -hmm. to a second to a second. It's a dying second. primary. It's a dying primary that goes to Kentucky or or Tennessee, and then just redevelops off the southeast coast, and then runs up north northeast. Right, and and it appears to be that you know on Wednesday we've got Wednesday morning we've got this developing system near Wilmington, North Carolina, and again where yesterday's ensemble run again for the GFS and the European has this storm like maybe about uh, 50 or 75 miles southeast of Nantucket by Thursday morning. Right. Whereas today's mean or today's ensemble between the GFS and European now has that system uh, maybe a couple of hundred miles southeast of Nantucket. And again, we're six days out. Where's the ensemble means going to show it tomorrow and on Sunday? I, I'm, I'm suggesting that this thing could be pushed a bit more to the south. And again, you have to worry about that. Well, it'll be colder. Worry. It'll be colder if it gets pushed to the south, be, and exactly. uh, it it it, it will favor more snow um, in areas that you might normally have to deal with the uh, sleet and rain issues. But on the other hand, if it's further south, that means that the heavier precip is also going to be further south. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly far from being decided, and I'm cer I, I certainly don't uh, think it's 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 um, it it's wise. Would it be something if we had a situation where this system brought like 10 to 15 inches of snow to Atlantic City and Philadelphia? And meanwhile, again, that sharp cutoff line, like Staten Island gets three inches. Right. And, the and then it shuts off. Let me just tell you, just speaking on the uh, on the order of the, the sharp cutoff line, I found the WPC's um, long range snow forecast map uh, a, a little odd. Uh, because now they, this was done in the middle of the day. It was done, I think, before the European came out. Uh, but even so, I found that they had they have a 50 to 7, that that blue area, and this is in day six. Okay, I, I believe that's day six. So I, I kind of I kind of use the the rule. I kind of use the rule that like like we use with SPC with the Storm Prediction Center when they have mm -hmm. their when they have a severe weather highlighted in days four through eight that's a, a, a that's a good indicator of uh, that's telling you that they they think it's a they could be a serious outbreak and you better be careful now what I found a little bit strange and just again and I I, I concur with you on your analysis with respect to things being further south. Uh, why do they have the 50 to 70% probability? Timothy Veltman, who's normally on the chat board, but he's not on at the moment, but Timothy Veltman pointed this out to me, and I said, yeah, I mean, that's that's correct. It's genius. Um, why did they have the northern, the 50% to 70% probability of at least an inch so far north? I mean, they have it up up north of Saratoga, for God's sakes, at the central yeah. point in New Hampshire. Yeah. And yeah. now... To be fair, they also in the 30 to 50 percent area um, from an earlier forecast was 10 to 30 and uh, wasn't even on the coast. It was just barely north and west of the coast. They pulled that all the way down. I think that's probably a good thing to do. I just I just question the northwest extent of this, given the very the very blocky nature of, of, of what's out there. I don't you know. know. The, and the other thing is, take a look. They, they have a. A light blue stripe. That's that's up to like yeah, seventy. I know that little. They, they know exactly the mountaintops in in northern in Litchfield County Berkshire. and it, right in the Berkshires. Yeah, that just that little strip. <laughs> I love when they do that. Or as they have like you know isolated little pockets in a few other places. You know, 
such precision to be able to nail it that way, <clears throat> or at least attempt to nail it that way. This map's going to change. If they go to the day five tomorrow, I think we're going to see you know more adjustments, obviously. And again, and you might say and look at the match as well. It's a probability of an inch big deal. Well, when you're six days out, there's not a whole lot of a confidence that you could do anything more than that. When right. you notice that WPC uh, waits till 72 hours before they do their probability of at least two in the 72-hour time frame. So uh, they're, they're telling you, the, the experts are not good at telling you what's going, what's going to happen six days from uh six days from now. So anybody else that's out there telling you they know what's going to happen uh, is, um, well, they're, they're, they're pulling your leg. So uh, let's, Joe, let's run through a couple of things. Um, one of the big keys in my view in all of this is the NAO. Uh, we've been taking looks of the, on, on this on a daily basis, and you'll notice on the North Atlantic Oscillation, uh, which is a, uh, you know, it tells us how strong the blocking is, the more negative the number uh, the, the stronger the, the, the blocking nature of the atmosphere and virtually all the ensemble members, uh, there are a few of them that get close to the neutral line in the next couple of weeks, but or barely positive. But for the most part, most of them remain uh, negative. Uh, that is the one reason why we are actually having uh, an, a, an opportunity for something to happen. And the other uh, thing to look at, another thing to look at is the Pacific North America index. That is actually trending in a positive direction for snow lovers uh, going to uh, neutral and then going slightly positive. Um, many of the members go slightly positive. So that at least is telling you that the profile in both the Pacific and in the East uh, is, um, is improving uh, with regards to opportunities for snow. The other thing is the Arctic Oscillation which remains at extremely stretched negative readings. And when the Arctic Oscillation is negative, like the NAO, uh, that means you have higher than normal pressures across the Arctic and cold air is, is going to be displaced further south. The one thing we don't have, the East Pacific Oscillation chart, but if we did, uh, it would be positive. And that is not conducive for Arctic air to come down. So we're really doing this cold air uh, we're, we're getting a little sneak uh, of, of cold air that is coming down. And uh, I, I was looking at this upper air, Joe. It, for a, a short period of time, we establish a polar connection. And that is what's bringing this high down. This air coming down is actually quite cold, particularly uh, up near the high center where the thicknesses get down close to 500 uh, that's that's low, and if you watch what happens here on the GFS, starting with tonight, uh, if you take a look, and I'll just put a few arrows on here, but if you take a look, you want to draw uh, the west to east flow, uh, you know, draw around the lows and the highs to figure out where the upper air uh, winds are coming from. Uh, it's not strong, but there is a northwest connection that's coming down from Canada into southeastern Canada, and of course you've got this other jet to the south, the southern part of the jet stream. Watch what happens in the 84 next 84 hours. This upper low, right up here, this upper low that's in northernmost Canada, drops down, and you get this short wave, this strong short wave, and then you also have this southern stream short wave that's going to take a storm offshore to our south on Monday, which is another thing I want to talk to you about. Right. But notice here, right in here, 
uh, suddenly, if only for a short, a relatively short period of time, I bet you if we had the EPO, if we had the E-specific oscillation chart, it probably goes negative in the next five days. And, and that allows cold air. We've got a, a, a brief, it's brief, but we have a polar connection that extends up from the Arctic region. So that is bringing down that big high. So the, the cold air that's coming down, that's going to start coming in here later Monday behind that, that storm that's going to move off the East Coast, that cold air mass is a real, it, it's a, it's a, it's a bona fide cold air mass. The cold, the core of the, the coldest air will probably stay further north, but some of that cold air is going to bleed down uh, into the mid-Atlantic states and maybe even into the Carolinas. And now, of course, you start to move along, you're going to see that polar connection break, but you have a a setup that we look for with respect to big storms. One is the 50-50 low. So our short wave in that northern stream becomes the 50-50 low. This whole area up here, from Greenland back across all of the Arctic with above normal pressures. So that forces everything to go to the south. That short wave trough can't lift up like a, to take a storm up to our west. It has to. It, it winds up getting forced out underneath us in a pattern like this. And when you think about it, Joe, you look at this and you realize just how complex the upper air has to get in order for snow to occur in, in certain areas of the country. Everything has to just fall just right. And may I say also, Joe, the one thing I miss about you not being on PIX11 anymore is that I would watch on Saturday night all of the forecasts of the all the others say, well, we're going to have mostly clear skies. It's sunny tomorrow. <laughs> and, you, and you were the only one who ever would bring up in your weather synoptic discussion on PIX11. And uh, tell me if I'm wrong about this. You were the only one to bring up stuff like the Greenland Brock, the 50-50 yeah. low. Yep. No yep. one ever talked about stuff like that. And yeah. I actually, yeah, but. You well, know, I had but, a wonderful producer, Noreen Lark, and she had, on those weekend shows, we had an hour to fill and no news. So she would just ask me if I could go five minutes. And I was like, sure, I'll oh, go as long crazy. as you need me to. And I, you know, I, I relished yeah. it. Uh, yeah. It was very good. Um, I got to, I got to do a lot. Of, I got to do a lot of stuff that I would not have been able to do anywhere else. Oh, yeah. And you certainly, you, you're certainly not able to do it now where everything is confined to, 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 to strict um, one minute weathers, one minute 30, maybe two minutes. Um, and that's it. Uh, that would, that's why we have this show, Mr. Ray, because we show. can go as long as we want. Commercials, commercials, commercials. And I, I, I challenge any of you on the chat board right now, if you have a stopwatch, watch the 6.30 evening news. I don't care if you watch Lester Holt or uh, any, any, any of the, either two or four or seven. And I want you to time out how much news you're getting versus how much commercial time you're getting. You'll be amazed. The schedule says you're getting 30 minutes of news. You're not getting 30 minutes of news. Uh, you're getting maybe, no, you're not. You get, you're getting maybe 17 or 18 minutes, and the rest is all commercials. That's why you don't get stuff. But I, I And Noreen worked at, uh, at Fios 1 for a while. Yes, she did. To meet her. Yes, so, she was so wonderful. I wish we were back in those days, Joe. Yeah. Yep. Uh, by the way, 131 likes so far. And for all you newcomers out there, welcome to the channel. We're... You can go back later and watch the beginning, and Joe Rayo did his uh, entire presentation on the Geminid meteor shower this weekend. 
uh, it was great. So when, when it's over, you can go back and, and, and watch that. Uh, but we just started doing the weather portion of, of the uh, show. And this is going to be a record for us, uh, by the way. 131 likes. So please, uh, thank you for liking it. And uh, if you haven't hit the like button, hit the like button. Uh, makes us feel good. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, I, I want to go back, though, to Monday. Because uh, I don't know if you noticed this. Uh, I don't know if you saw uh, what the European did for Monday, but uh, now uh, suddenly uh, we are uh, seeing where precipitation seems to want to be drawn northward for um, for Monday into Monday night, and it's because you have um, the northern stream here. This is what's bringing down the cold air, and your southern stream short wave. And that's uh, creating a low that is going to be moving off the Carolinas and then uh, out to the northeast. But, uh, Joe, the European not only brought that precip up there, up here, but it actually implied that the northern shortwave would move along to a point where cold air would start coming in Monday afternoon. And on the northern flank uh, of that, changed it over to snow. And I don't know if you saw the, uh, the uh, snow map. Again, I'm not really so much uh, worried about the number. The numbers. I was just surprised that it did anything at all. But let me just show you this. Now, I'm not putting it. I, I didn't put it. Mention it in my forecast. Uh, I did mention that we could get some rain up from that southern system, but I was really surprised um, with um, with what it did. Just I'll bring up the surface map. I'm not going to bring up the snow map. Uh, but I'll bring up the surface. It, it actually gave several inches in a narrow band from northeastern Pennsylvania to just north of New York City. But take a look at this. I'll put the surface up. These maps, by the way, of courtesy of uh, of Pivotal Weather. Great website, by the way, if you haven't uh, uh, gone on there to use uh, some of their free stuff. But this was um, the European at uh, 12Z Monday where it starts changing it over to sleet and snow in West Virginia, back through Pennsylvania. And then at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, there you go, uh, it has um, it changed it over to snow in northern New Jersey, north of Route 78. It's got a band of sleet that runs right across New York City, part, uh, most of Long Island, and into southern New England, and then a narrow band of snow to the north with a low down, a wave down in northeastern North Carolina. Your thoughts? I, I don't know what the algorithm is. And I, I said for the tri-state area that we would be seeing a cloudy, damp, dreary day. And I had temperatures mostly in the low 40s. I didn't even think about temps in the 30s. I, I, I think the, the maybe I may be wrong, but I think the lowest levels of the atmosphere are going to be just a tad too warm to support. Yeah, I was just I was just surprised. Uh, you know, you want to argue that maybe there might be a change to snow or sleep before it ends on the northern side. Um, I was just surprised that it did it at all be, for the for the reasons you mentioned, because the the cold air from the high doesn't really come in until after the low is gone. But on the other hand, if the Europeans suggesting that that cold high is is nosing in uh, at, at, at for for the, a couple of for the last couple of hours that the precipitation is overhead, <clears throat> I again I did not put it in my forecast. I kind of went with the way you did. Um, I was just really shocked that it did this. I, I it was something I did not expect. 
And, and Tim Beltman brings up a good point on the chat board. He says, do you think how Monday storm behaves compared to modeling as high watermark for how Wednesdays will or will not be related at all, or will it not be related at all? Tim, my, my point of view is, I think you hit it right on the nose. We're just gonna have to see how strong uh, this, this system uh, becomes because it will indeed become a player in how the next system coming up from behind, bringing up the rear, so to speak, right. is going to react and, and take take shape for Wednesday and Thursday. Well, I, I, can, like I, can, I can tell you this. Uh, the reason why the European and, and the Canadian, but especially the European, I believe that the reason why the European is more amped up than the other models is because it is also more amped up with the 50-50 low. I mean, it's got a really wrapped up animal there just east of Newfoundland come Wednesday morning. Uh, I would, as a result, you get a little bit more ridging, uh, particularly up in southeastern Canada. In between that and the system that's going to be coming into the east, this, uh, the stronger 50-50 low um, amps up the the the, the, uh, the the next system, the one that we're going to be dealing with on Wednesday, as it lifts northeastward. So uh, uh, that might be the reason why the European is, is so, is, 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 did what it did in terms of having a much more dynamic looking system. Yeah. But I, you know what? When we come back on Sunday morning with Joe and Joe, we're, we're going to be within that magic 84-hour range for uh, <clears throat> for the Wednesday storm. But Whatever we see on Wednesday, we still have to, I think, wait another 24 hours to see what the Monday storm does, as uh, Tim Belden just alluded to. Because right. once, we, once, once we get the Monday storm out of the way and we see how that thing develops and reacts, that's when we're going to know. I think Monday night or, or Tuesday, that's when we're going to know uh, pretty much the story for the uh, storm that we're expecting. And by the way, the last couple of days, I've seen a lot of forecasts that say this is going to get kick in as soon as Wednesday morning or first thing Wednesday. And it actually looks like it, when it gets going, it's not going to get going until maybe later Wednesday or maybe even Wednesday evening. Well, that's that's the Europeans. That was the Europeans idea that it would be, yeah. you know, if you have a stronger 50 50 low, you're going to have a stronger high behind it. And that's going to mean that the, the, the system coming in has got more dry air to fight before before it, it, it uh, the precip gets here. So I, I also would agree with you that you could see the arrival of snow maybe later in the day, Wednesday, as opposed to earlier in the day. Now, right. again, does that mean that we're going to deal with a more amped up low? I don't know. Meanwhile, I, you know, I was looking at the GFS. All the models are very similar, so you start to look for subtleties and differences. So the, the one difference I can see with the GFS of the 50-50 low is that it, it, it's, it's a little less deep. That It's a little less intense than what the European has. has. So you don't have as much ridging in between uh, the two systems. Uh, so that might give a little bit more room for uh, the uh, system coming into the East Coast. To Of course, then, then the models differ in how they handle the trough because the Europeans got a short wave right behind this. The GFS does not. So, you know, the GFS just kind of has this open trough, this positively tilted trough that just sort of moves along. The European doesn't do that. The European actually takes this southern shortwave and negatively tilts it as it lifts it up as it lifts it up the coast. So, you know, those are two different those are two different outcomes that you're talking about here. Uh, if you if you get a, sh a shortwave trough that's going to negatively tilt and lift up the coast, you could wind up with a fairly wrapped up storm. 
I don't know that I believe that. I I, 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 I don't know that I can accept that at this early stage. It's just too, it, like you said, it's way too early to come to any sort of conclusion. I just think the best thing you could say right now is, is it going to snow? Probably yes. Are we going to have accumulating snow for places like maybe Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York City? I think the likelihood of those cities as you go further north, the answer is yes. Uh, that this will be the first accumulating snow of the season. As far as how much, that that anything I say now is just a guess. And if I would get it right, uh, it would be just sheer luck uh, at this we'll point. We'll see. We'll see. We, uh, I I, uh, I think. Well, whatever. It doesn't really matter at this point. What I think is it's, sure it's, it does. It always matters. You matter, Joe. You always it's, matter. It's gonna flip and flop uh, at least a couple of more times. I don't know that it'll flip and flop. I think. I think it's more. I. I well, maybe it will. But I, I mean, I don't know that it's gonna flip and flop. I think what we're gonna look at are the subtleties of what the big high does to the north and what the what the the 50-50 low does to the northeast because at the end of the day those are the really the big determinants here in, in my view and just as a point of just as a point of reference uh, the uh, climate prediction center on their extended 3 to 4 week probability charts has us above has i'd say about 85% of the country above normal from December 26th through January the 9th, and the only one of the few, they only have two places that are going to see above normal precipitation, the Pacific Northwest and the entire Northeast. Everybody else is either equal chances or across the Southern tier of the US below normal in terms of precip. That again is from the time frame from Boxing Day, December 26th right. to uh, January the, I think that's the ninth. Yeah. Well, you know what? You look at the upper pattern the way it is, and if you know with the blocky nature of it, and that 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 uh, the stuff going, the way things are happening out in the west, uh, it's it it's gonna get it's gonna be active. We're gonna have weather systems coming along, and I I think uh, the question the question is gonna be: Are we gonna get these occasional connections where we could bring down a cold high? And uh, get that involved in whatever storm system is going to be in there. So uh, it's going to be a fun next couple of weeks. That's that's for darn sure. Now, here's here's something that's important. If you're a for, you know if you're a forecaster, this is a a, a situation where uh, you're going to be somewhat challenged because that high to the north, Joe, as you know, uh, we experience highs like this you get that north northeast wind at least for a while that can bring down some very cold air i did notice that uh the the 850 level for example uh on the uh, on the gfs which i'm bringing up now wednesday morning the uh the zero at 850 uh is down uh on the uh, southern border of delaware on the delmarva peninsula and goes you know maybe just south of washington dc it's minus six to minus nine from set between central New Jersey and uh, <clears throat> up to about Poughkeepsie. It's between minus six and minus nine at 850. That's cold. That is cold. That is cold. And also, folks, for those of you who live further south, now the GFS was, a, was probably the warmer of the models with this, but uh, the European was definitely colder. In, you'll, if you look in Pennsylvania down into western Virginia, you see how the isotherms kind of dip down and make a, a little bit of a V-shape. 
That is the high building down the Appalachians and wedging that cold air down, and especially at the low levels of the atmosphere, uh, the, 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 the bottom levels of the atmosphere. If that cold air is for real, uh, you could wind up with some uh, uh, freezing rain and sleet going all the way down into the Western Carolinas. That's something that the European indicated and also went to Western in, into um, uh, Western and Central Virginia. So that's something to keep for you folks in the Mid-Atlantic state, the interior Mid-Atlantic states. Uh, that's something I think you need to keep an eye on. I see Scott Griller says, by the way, somebody on the chat board around Halloween predicted the nor uh, predicted Northeast snowstorm December 13th, 18th. If you know who it is, congrats to him or her. And uh, uh, Fled Weather says it's you, Scott. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, Scott, I, all I'll say to Scott is let's not pat yourselves on the back just yet because we still have six days to go. And, uh, and, and Scott, by weird, the way, weird, weird things can happen. And Scott, by the way, uh, hitting super chat, uh, uh, ten bucks for ten inches. He says, <laughs> "Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate it. Hope you had uh, a good night tonight with your your COVID runs, because I know um, you were you were definitely out there working. And please stay safe, by the way, because that that the virus is everywhere. Um, I can't tell you Joe, how many people I, I I got text messages from today uh, saying that you know a relative of theirs." Um, uh, is sick. So we wish we wish everybody stay safe and be well. Now, just to go back to um, the 8:50 map here, uh, one o'clock in the afternoon on Wednesday, it is still minus six at long, across the north shore of Long Island, northern New Jersey. Uh, the zero is maybe just north of Atlantic City. So I mean that's pretty tight. Uh, but you're trying to get that warm air is trying to come up. The zero never gets any further north than that. It it collapses right after that on the GFS. And it's down off the coast of Cape May, out into the coastal waters. It's still between minus three and minus six in a band that runs from northern Virginia, uh, south central, southeastern PA, central New Jersey, Long Island. Uh, maybe that's where the, you know, if, if that's how the isotherm set up at 850, maybe that's where the heaviest snow winds up falling. Right. Yeah, it's, well, again, six days out, a lot of, a lot of speculation. And a lot can happen between now and when the uh, first flakes or the first uh, round of precip arrives. So, all right, let's just will... let's just real quick. I'm just going to run through the just the upper air for the long range, because if uh, a few people did ask about this, um, what happens after all of this is done? Well, it, it's um, it's quite interesting and quite messy, if you ask me, uh, from the standpoint of the upper air, not from the standpoint of any precip that could result, but. Um, just take this five, this upper air setup, Joe, is something that I don't know that I've ever seen like this. You know, we've doing this for 40 years, and I'm always amazed at how you still see things you've never seen before. But here we have, you know, we have this blocky look across the North Atlantic into the Arctic. At the same time, you've got what what looks like just a mess from eastern Russia across Alaska, down the West Coast, into the Rockies. I mean, it's just crazy. It's just a crazy-looking upper air. It's as far away from a west-to-east jet stream as you could possibly imagine. Right. And, and, right. and it's, mean, it looks, it's just crazy. It, it's just crazy-looking. It looks initially, I, the, from what I'm seeing, I'm, I'm about 45 seconds behind you, I think, but you see it. It looks like kind of like a fire hose in the 
in the North Pacific, and it looks like that's going to aim right toward the contiguous United States, except with that one upper low over uh, north of uh, Alaska into, as you mentioned, Siberia, and sending down impulses, if you will, and blocking and bending that fire hose in such a manner of speaking so that we don't get fire hose type weather for the Pacific coast. It gets deflected, is so to speak. Right. And, and it, uh, drawing the different the different uh, streams of air, if you want to follow the flow as to where air masses are, are moving along, uh, you, you, you have I, I, three distinct splits here. I mean, it's just it's just nuts. And then in between of that, of course, you've got you, you, you know, you've got no no Arctic connection. The cold air actually probably comes down from Alaska and somehow finds its way down into the West. But then you don't have upper winds that are cross-polar at all. But at the same time, you do have all this whole area with higher than normal pressures. If we're going to get cold air and low-level cold air, it's going to be coming from the Northeast, not from the Northwest. So this could lead to some interesting scenarios down the road uh, with this with this blocky with this blocky mess that 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 uh, let, takes us right at least through December twenty seventh. Yep. It's, yep, I it, agree. It's I crazy. Agree. But I uh, I think the door is is going to be open uh, for for the snow lovers at least for the upcoming next several not not for this weekend the immediate weekend but as we move through this upcoming week and whether or not we can keep that door open beyond let's say next Friday. Uh, with this mess, as you call it, uh, is yet to be seen. And by the way, we we've been talking about weather now since I stopped talking at uh, 8.30, uh, 40 minutes or so, and I've yet to mention, or you have yet to mention the fact that Sunday is going to be an outstandingly warm and rather nice day out there, I think. I think we're going to see temperatures well into the 50s. Some of you may even touch 60 degrees on Sunday, and I think the skies will eventually break out into a kind of a blend of high clouds and sunshine. So those of you who have yet to do anything outside by putting any kind of decorations up for the holidays, uh, that may be your last real good day to do it before the uh, everything falls in for uh, for next week. By the way, uh, you know, Bill mentioned there was, there was an article yesterday uh, in the Washington Post about the Weather Service having to, you know, they got so much good stuff on their web, on their uh, on NOAA's website that uh, they are running out of bandwidth. Uh, so uh, what I've noticed is on some of the off-model uh, hour runs of the of the NAM, for example, uh, the 18Z NAM is only coming in now uh, in pieces. I, I was dying to see this because of what the European did with respect to Monday, uh, and uh, actually it's in through 22 hours. And then there's still waiting for maps from 23 to hour 57, but we have the 60 to 84 hour. So I wanted to look at what it was doing on Monday. And it does on the northern fringe of this uh, for the first time on the NAM. Uh, it has uh, snow in West Virginia and then into South Central and Southeastern PA and a little bit of snow on the northern flank across New Jersey into Long Island. So this is the, this is the Monday system. And you can see where the low is. Uh, Monday afternoon, it's sitting uh, east of the uh, Virginia coast and running out to the east-northeast. I'm sorry, and then to the northeast. And that's your fifth. That's going to be the big 50-50 low. Uh, the other thing is, Joe, the European, I forgot to mention this also, 
because it's so strong with that low that it develops that heads of the Canadian Maritimes, the gradient here uh, later Monday and Monday night into Tuesday morning gets pretty tight. Um, it, it may get, if the Europeans, right, it could, it could get gusty um, late Monday, Monday night into Tuesday morning as that cold air moves on in. No, that figures, right? Your Stuhl would probably be trying to get out there and seeing what he could see Monday night and probably would be subjected to wind chills of, you know, God knows how many degrees below zero. Right. With the roaring, with the well, roaring I don't know about below zero, but uh, it's, it, 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 that, the the gradient was uh, was uh, I was I was actually impressed by how tight the gradient was I, I didn't actually see let me see how low uh, let me just real quick Joe I I I know we've been going for almost uh, we're an hour and forty five minutes I mean if we're going to set a record let's set a we we've set it in a big way today as one of our longest programs um, yeah. uh, but just give me a, a moment here I want to pull up the European Atlantic view. And pull up the uh, the pressures. So again, this is it's got a 971 low Tuesday morning. I'll put it up on the screen so everybody can see. Uh, it's got a 971 low between Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, and of course we've got a 1036 high in the over the western shores of Lake Superior. So the, the gradient is actually tighter Tuesday morning in New England. Um uh, it's it's tight here but it's not quite as tight. So it probably means that it'll be windy overnight uh, Monday night and then uh, still a bit breezy uh, into Tuesday morning and of course by Wednesday morning the high is sitting up in Quebec. And that high again it, it it's the key to all of this. It, it's the absolute key to to, to this whole to this whole situation. So to this situation. It is. Yes. So there you have it. You're talked out, I can tell. No, I've just uh, you know, it's it's been a long week. Oh, I know. It it certainly has. So um <clears throat> no show for tomorrow, folks. Uh so we're going to we I mean, I'll be posting so for those of you on my weather platform on Patreon, uh, you got a weather in 10 video today. You'll get a weather in 10 video tomorrow. Uh, I'll be doing weather in five uh, for everybody tomorrow morning sometime. Uh, and aren't you happy we're back on standard time? Because we will be yes. coming on at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. When With the new, the new GFS coming out during the show. Coming out, so that's going to be, that's, that's, that's perfect. So, and, uh, so yeah, so it'll, it, it, it will be, by then we'll have it all figured out, of course. Uh, of, course. So, of course. So, uh, what are the odds, Joe, that we will be the next three or four runs? What are the odds that one of those three or four runs is going to take that that midweek system and take it all the way to our south? <laughs> I don't know if it'll take it that far south. Um, I, I don't know if it'll take it that far south, but but I, I wouldn't be sh I wouldn't be surprised if you do see it uh, a, a bit further south and. Uh, some some folks are uh, some folks are going to be sweating out where the northern cutoff is. Um, right, I, right, I, and that's yeah. That, the, the, in in eighty three with the megalopolitan storm of nineteen eighty three, February eleventh and twelfth, uh, I can tell you that in the days leading up, we were relying then on the on the uh, two dot LFM. No, wait a minute. I think we had the NAM, uh, the uh, the ETA back then. Yeah, the, ADA. the early eighty three. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I don't, you know, 
God, it's like almost 40 years ago. Why am I even trying to figure out? Whatever. <laughs> they, it, in the three or four days leading up to the event, everybody was talking about big snowstorm, big snowstorm. And then literally the morning, it was a Friday, Friday morning or late Thursday night, Friday morning, everything was pulled off to the south. Yeah, and I remember. Places, and places like Boston and Albany, they pulled down all of their uh, snow warnings and advisories and watches because, well, the new data shows that it's going to go to our south now. And well, then the very next run, Friday afternoon, brought everything back up north again. And now the, everybody's like running like crazy every which way, trying to correct or trying to bring back all the snow that they had already pulled out. Well, that happened also with, with the Boxing Day storm. Uh, That's the, right. The the it, it, also it also happened uh, with the um, for one run with the blizzard of 96, where it came in and cut all the precip in half. Right. I remember that. And, and a few people, you know, some people were like starting to panic. And I'll admit that I, I kind of had a little bit of a pit in my stomach, but I decided, you know what, let's give it one more run. And the very next run, it came right back. So came right back. Yeah. All right. Friday, I remember we had the AVN. We were relying at that for the 60-hour. Yes. I yes. remember what Joe used to say, folks. He said, don't get sour. It's the 60-hour. Exactly. <laughs> and, and the 60-hour AVN took the whole, the northern edge of the storm was like way off to our south. Like, oh, what happened? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then right after that, that 12 hours later, boom, we got we were getting mauled. So. All right, folks. Um, time to go. Uh, we... Uh, didn't quite make it to two hours, but we made it to an hour and 48 minutes. So that's a good thing. 154 likes tonight. Thank you very much for uh, liking our show. And if you haven't liked it yet, there's still time because it takes me usually a couple of minutes to say goodbye. Uh, but the, excuse me. Thanks for being here. Uh, Scott Briller, thanks for hitting Super Chat. Anthony Orr and Jacob, I'm sorry. Um, normally I would have it on the screen, but... For some reason, uh, the list of the name list of the super chat. Remember, it was Jacob, and I don't remember your last name. But thank you also uh, for hitting super chat tonight. So here's the situation, folks. We are going to be back on um, Sunday morning at 11 o'clock Eastern time for our regular Sunday morning Joe and Joe Weather Show. So uh, make sure you got your coffee all set to go and uh, join us then, because as Joe said. Uh, the the the, uh, the new run of the GFS will be coming out um, right at the time we're going to be on the air. So you'll we'll we'll, we'll live stream the uh, the new GFS to see what it's telling us. And don't forget Tuesday we are going to have as our guest Bill Corbell on uh, Tuesday evening. Yes, and, and by the way, we may have another guest, another new guest next week, but I'm not going to tell you who it is yet. Really? I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you after we sign off, because okay. I haven't. I haven't cinched up a date, uh, a firm date, and and you know you know how it is. People, you know, you yeah you, you invite them to come on, and then and then you tell them to pick a date, and then you never hear from them again, because they right. sit they sit back and watch the show, and they suddenly realize I am not going into that alligator den. <laughs> <laughs> No, we're very right. kind to our guests. We, oh, we are. Yeah, we are. For we 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 waive the one-time guest fee, um, and uh, you know, and we also are very generous. We waive the dollar ninety-nine inconvenience fee, 
et cetera, et and, cetera. And every guest and every guest gets a copy of the Joe and Joe home game. Yeah, exactly. Along with all sorts of wonderful parting gifts, <laughs> like a pan flute. All right, the Joe and Joe Weather Show tonight brought to you by, as always, Omni True Value Hardware of West Babylon, New York, Long Island's largest rock salt provider, and uh, definitely a provider of winter storm supplies that you might need to get through this system next week. Mag ice pellets and flakes, petalo calcium chloride pellets, Omni Melt, Geo Melt, Bio Melt, shovels, spreaders, snow blowers, you name it, they have it, including generators, by the way. Omni True Value Hardware. 1226 North Wellwood Avenue in West Babylon, just north of the Southern State Parkway, 631-756-1125. The best prices in town, omnitruevalue.com. So good night, everybody, and uh, we'll see you on Sunday. Uh, and Joe, I will see you Sunday morning. We'll be here. All right, take care. Good night, all. <laughs>